morning. It's great to see you this morning. We are close to Christmas, eight days away, seven, seven days, eight sleeps. We're certainly eight sleeps um, away. Is everyone ready for Christmas? Is anyone sick of being asked that question yet? I'm going to say something a little bit controversial. I'm kind of a little bit sick of being asked that question. It's, kind of, it's, it's your default December small talk, or DDS, as I like to, to, to term it. And it's, it's kind of, it's one of those questions. It seems like December starts, and suddenly people start asking this question of, so, uh, you ready for Christmas yet? And people tend to fall into one of two categories with this. They tend to fall into either the smug or the secretly worried. That's the, the kind of conclusion that, that I'm coming to. And actually, I have a theory. I have a theory that people ask this question not because they're genuinely interested. No one's ever going to ask me this question ever again, are they? Not because they're genuinely interested in whether you're ready for Christmas, but as a gauge to see how worried should I be. So there are certain people, probably, and some of you may have done this this morning, you may have targeted specific people and thought, well, if they're ready, then I really need to panic. I'm not going to name names, but, and I'm really not going to name names, but um, there are probably people that you're saying, I think, well, you know. If you're, so because I have this theory, my default response to this question this year has always been, and from now on will continue to be, um, yeah, absolutely, sorted, everything. Presents, food, wrapping, stockings, done. Absolutely nailed. Just to see whether I can make people panic. Because I, I, I suspect I'm one of these people that if I'm ready, other people think, well, I should have been ready ages ago. But it's one of those things, isn't it? It's kind of default December small talk as we're in the run-up to Christmas. Now, the, the reality is, for me, we actually are ready for Christmas. And I know. I do fall very much into the smug category. It's kind of a spectrum. You can be somewhere within smug. You don't have to be completely and utterly uh, smug like I am. You can be a little bit further down the line. But we are actually pretty much there. Now, the main reason that we're there is because I did the very sensible thing of letting reorganize everything, which is, <laughs> she's on maternity leave. I mean, you know. In fact, <laughs> um, she will shoot me for saying this, but Re has been asked several times while, while on maternity leave. So what do you do with all your time? Now, <laughs> we have four children, just putting that in context. Um, so probably far more than I do at work is the answer to that, that question, just in case you're wondering. Um, but I, I let reorganize everything to do with Christmas. I just kind of turned up. I took some annual leave to do Christmas shopping, and we've done all the wrapping at the same time as well while the kids were at school, and that's, that's brilliant. And I let reorganize everything except the food. The food is mine, mainly because I'm a little bit of a control freak when it comes to food, but also because Re hates cooking, whereas I love cooking. There is nothing better on Christmas Day. I know that people like to um, pretend that they, they enjoy opening presents with kids and all of that sort of stuff, um, but I just love being in the kitchen um, and, uh, and cooking and creating something. And I do love my kids, don't get me wrong. Um, but the reality is there's a lot of mess and paper and stuff everywhere. And they'll be excited, whatever happens. I enjoy the cooking. And that's, that's kind of my thing. But the, the thing that I've discovered, um, and it seems like a weird thing to say that I've discovered, is that my wife and I are actually very different people. And you discover more of this the longer you're married, I think, um, just how different you are. And then you kind of grow to be a little bit similar in certain respects as well. But we're actually very different people. So Re hates cooking, whereas I quite enjoy cooking. Um, Re likes intense emotional films, 
And she often subjects me to these films that I think, in fact, I've, got, I've taken to asking at the start of films, is this going to upset me? <laughs> and I can normally tell within the first kind of five, ten minutes whether it's going to upset me or not. But also, most of the time, if I'm being completely honest, and I apologize for this, but I can normally tell how it's going to end. Kind of we, we're going to have a bit of turmoil. There's going to be a lot of kind of relationship issues and dealing with stuff. And then eventually there'll be some sort of, either one of two things will happen. It'll be a nice happy ending. And that'll be nice. But about an hour and a half later. Or there'll be a completely unsatisfying, really annoying, frustrating, sad, emotional ending to it. Um, but Re likes those emotional films. I like films that mainly, and this is kind of just a comment on how shallow I am, um, mainly things get blown up or destroyed, uh, or are in space. That's the, the sort of thing um, that happens. So it's very difficult to find a film that we actually enjoy um, together. And as we've discovered, Ree is actually very organized, and I'm less so, although I'm growing to be more organized, I think. Um, so I actually I bought a secret Santa present for a colleague in the office this year, which normally I completely forget. Um, so that's progress. This is, um, I'm, I'm working. But it's interesting, because we're, we're different people, but we're in it together. You know, we've chosen to live life together, so we're, we're totally different, but in this life together. And that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning, because we're talking about hope and light um, as we're in the run-up to Christmas. And this morning is about Mary and Joseph's hope. And Mary and Joseph are one of these um, kind of couples in the Bible that we very much, I think, subconsciously lump together. And I think we do that with couples quite a lot. It's kind of Rhea and Tim, Paul and Sarah, Mork and Mindy, Pinky and the Brain. Pinky and Perky, Ant and Deck, trying to include all the generational references. Simon and Garfunkel, does that fit in somebody's? I don't know. Um, but they're these they're two people that we put together, but actually they are different. But they're different, but they're in it together. And so what I'm going to do is we know the story of Mary and Joseph from the point of view of we know that they traveled to Bethlehem, they had the donkey on the dusty road, and they got their stable, no room at the inn. And they have a baby, and the baby Jesus, just clarifying. And then you have the shepherds and the wise men and all that sort of stuff. We, we kind of know that story. Is there anyone who doesn't know that story? <sighs> That's good. Because I'm not actually going to tell that story today. What we're going to look at is the first time that God encounters Mary and Joseph. Or rather, when Mary and Joseph encounter God. And it's interesting because it's actually told in the Bible as two separate accounts. There's an angel visits Mary, and an angel visits Joseph. You'd have thought being efficient, God might want to catch them when they're both together. Presumably they spent some time together. Um, but there's probably a reason why they were visited separately in two different ways, because actually they're different people, but they're in it together. So we're going to look at two different accounts, and they're in different Gospels, helpfully. So Mary's visit is in Luke. So Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26, is Mary's story. So you get in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, Elizabeth is Mary's cousin who's pregnant with John the Baptist. So just some context. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Or in other words, sorry, what? But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great, will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, 
and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So Mary has this amazing encounter with a messenger from God, with an angel, entirely separate to Joseph. Joseph has his own encounter with God. And it's in Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, starting the first book of the, of the book, starting the first chapter of the book, if you like. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly, which would have been a very different story, I think, if he had done. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Two entirely separate encounters. People who knew each other, hopefully, um, but were very different from one another and had different encounters with God. They were different but in it together. What I love about this is that God recognizes the individuality of Mary and Joseph, and that actually they needed to have their own encounter with him to be able to fulfill their purpose together. They were different, but in it together. So what, I'm, what I want to do is look at those two accounts and basically pull out two com- a few common things, not two common things, a few common things between the two encounters, because God treats them as individuals. But the end product is the same. They did as he commanded. And Jesus was born into a family where both parents were present. So there's some common things between the two stories. And this is where it starts. It starts with fear, which seems like a weird thing to start with at Christmas, doesn't it? But it's interesting how one of the first things that the angel says to both Mary and Joseph, to Joseph in Matthew 1.20 It says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. The Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, but do not be afraid. For Mary, in Luke 1.30, it says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Do you not find it fascinating? The first thing that God has to say to people is, do not be afraid. Can you imagine if you had to do that every time you walked into somebody's house? Don't be afraid. It's all right. Admittedly, they probably weren't expecting them. So if you turn up unexpected at somebody's doorstep, particularly someone you've never met before, they might be a little bit freaked out. So you you could open with that. I appreciate. But fear has varying definitions. And there's there's actually a lot of different definitions of fear, and I found a few. Um, But generally, there's, there's three common themes. So you've got an unpleasant feeling when you think that you're in danger is one. Another is that you think someone will harm you, which is kind of related to the first one, or that something unpleasant might happen or might have happened. 
Those are generally the kind of things that we fear when we're talking about rational fears, and we'll get into that in a second. But that's kind of what fear is, is there's a fear. Actually, I don't know what's going on here. This is a little bit uncertain. This is a foreign thing. I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I might be in danger. I might not. Which is kind of rooted in an insecurity of not knowing who the person is that you're dealing with. And so when God comes and says, hold on, don't be afraid, there may have been an element of Mary and Joseph not really knowing who God was. And we'll come on to statements that the angel makes about who God is and the kind of God that is going to make this promise to Mary in a little bit. But fear kind of falls into two categories. You've got rational fear and you've got irrational fear. So rational fear is being afraid of things that genuinely might hurt you. So spiders and snakes kind of falls into this rational fear. You can have irrational fear of spiders and snakes, depending on how large they are or small they are. But as a general rule, that sort of thing, or fear of heights, you could describe as a bit of a rational fear because they're genuine cause for concern. There are some irrational fears flying around. I don't know if anyone has any irrational fears in here. I won't name and, and shame you. Hopefully, none of you, well, some of you may suffer from these. So I'm go I found a few irrational fears, if that's okay. Um, churophobia. Anyone know what churophobia is? It's a fear of cheese. Could be a really severe issue at this time of year. If, particularly if you're visiting relatives and you have a fear of cheese and they're not aware of this. So just uh, be aware of that when you're planning Christmas menus. Um, omphalophilia, or, or omphalophobia, sorry. Omphalophobia, any ideas? Fear of belly buttons. <laughs> this is a genuine thing. Um, there's a, a fear of belly buttons, kind of either kind of looking at them or, or touching them. I, I don't really know. We probably shouldn't get into that too much. Um, and anyone know what nomophobia is? This is, this is supposedly affects half of the UK population, whether you're aware of it or not. This is fear of having no mobile phone coverage. <laughs> That's a genuine phobia at this point. Now, it can manifest itself from anything, anything from a little bit of anxiety when you haven't got any mobile phone reception through to full-on kind of tantrums and, and actual fear of losing your mobile phone. So... That's, that's a genuine kind of phobia. And fears can be rational or they can be irrational. But what we need to remember is Mary and Joseph grew up in a culture where um, a fear of God was actually a genuine rational fear, historically. And by fear of God, you know, we talk about fear of God in, in the Bible and in, in Christian circles as kind of awe and, and wonder and, and majesty. We're not really talking about that. We're talking about genuine fear actual fear that God might harm you. And if you look back historically through the Old Testament, that's backed up by a fair bit um, of history. Exodus 20, 18 to 19, this is just after God's given the people of Israel the Ten Commandments, or given Moses the Ten Commandments. And it says this, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. There's a genuine fear embedded in the culture there. And fear has certainly been, it's, it's, there, there was a, um, a, culture, a cultural thing at the time of priests going into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, on a, um, on a relatively infrequent basis. Um, but they would have a rope tied around them when they go in to that part of the temple, just in case they dropped down dead and they had to get pulled back, which is the sort of thing that's going to inspire a fair bit of fear of God, I would imagine. And there's various stories throughout the Old Testament. And it's interesting because this is how, and the thunder and the, and the lightning and everything was, was kind of how historically God communicated with his people. And God recognized this when he came to Mary 
and Joseph. And it's like God was coming and saying, well, do not be afraid. I know what your experience of me has been or what your concept of me has been. I know what you think I'm like, but actually now I'm doing something new and I'm doing something different. I'm engaging with people in a different way. I'm engaging with you in a different way. So don't be afraid. And this is the precursor to Jesus coming, that this is the God who is sending his son into the world to meet us at our point of need rather than inspiring fear. The interesting thing about fear is that a lot of the time it places restrictions on your life. You can't go certain places because you're afraid. You can't do certain things because you're afraid. God is in the, in, is in the business of removing restrictions. He's in the business of removing fear. 1 John 4.18, which is a famous verse which many of you will know, says there is no fear in love. For perfect love drives out all fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. In other words, something bad is going to happen to me. But the one who fears is not made perfect in love. When you are made perfect in love, it drives out your fear. So do not be afraid. God is doing something new. Sometimes we need to understand that our perception of God has been a little bit wrong. It may not be to the same extent as the cultural, historical um, concept of God from the Israelites. But sometimes we're afraid of things or we're worried about things or we're anxious about things because our concept of who God is is a little bit misguided. And we don't fully trust who he is. And actually, this Christmas, I believe God can come to you and say, I'm doing something new now. Who you have known me to be doesn't have to be who I am in your life at this point. Do not be afraid. Why? Because of who this is from. And that's the next thing that the angels say. Remove fear. And who is this promise from? Luke 1.35, which is when um, the angel is talking to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Matthew 1.20, talking to Joseph, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. When we understand who the promise is from, and we're correctly rooted in that, it removes our fear. That's what Mary and Joseph needed to do. They needed to understand who this promise was from. For, for both of them, it was important that they understood who orchestrated their circumstances. Because it was going to be difficult. They, were, they needed to know what the purpose was behind it. Not only was the pregnancy going to be difficult, the journey to Bethlehem was going to be difficult, the birth was going to be difficult, in the dark, on their own. But actually, life after that was going to be potentially even more difficult. They became refugees, went into Egypt, then had to come back and set up in a completely new town. They then went through life knowing that their son was the son of God, but nobody really understanding that or I don't know if they had anyone to talk to do we ever think about that who do you talk to about these things without them thinking that you're a crazy person but actually then seeing their son brutally murdered and crucified at the age of 33 there were going to be some tough times ahead they needed to know who the promise was from they needed to know who God was 1 John 4 8 says this Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
They needed to know that this was a message of love. This was a message of hope. This was a message of light. This was a message of peace. And they needed to know it individually. God came to them and said it to them individually. They needed to know from God that he was love and that he had a plan for them on an individual basis, but they would act it out together. They were individuals and different, but in it together. So they needed to know who it was from so they could remove their fear because they needed a hope for the future. The future is where God was taking them. And it's where God was, is taking us. Luke 1, we're looking back at Mary. The angel says, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. It's a statement of the future. Matthew 1:21. he will save his people from their sins. This is the angel talking to Joseph again. Different, but in it together. They needed to have their own encounter with Jesus. This was their hope that Jesus would make things better. Sometimes in life, we need to know that things are going to get better. Or we need to cling on to the hope that things can get better. Between, um, my, between Rhea and I's um, first and second child, we had three miscarriages. And sometimes it's difficult to know that things are going to get better. Sometimes that verse that we're going to read again in a minute, Becky, about um, people who's walking in darkness, we can feel like that in life. Sometimes there are disappointments. Sometimes things you, you hope that things will get better, and they don't. After the first miscarriage, we hoped it would get better, and it didn't. After the second one, we hoped it would get better, and it didn't. After the third one, we hoped that it would get better, and it did. And we have some beautiful children as a result. But it doesn't always work like that. You know, sometimes life is hard and we need to cling on to the hope that things will get better. And you will have your own issues and circumstances and, and things that you are going through, have gone through and come out the other side of. You need to know that Jesus has come so that things can get better. There is a hope there. There is a future there. God is saying to them, I have a promise for you and it has a future. But what's interesting is that that future wasn't just for them. When you listen to the promise, it's about Jesus saving his people, saving them from their sins. Not saving you from their sins, saving them from their sins. It was a gift, but not just for them. He was saying that this isn't just about you, and they would need to hold on to that. Isaiah 9, which is the verse that Becky read earlier on, we're going to read a little bit more of it is a statement in the Bible about Jesus, about the coming of the Messiah. And it says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. 
To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the promise of Jesus coming. This is the promise of Jesus coming to the people of Israel, to Mary and Joseph, and to you. That your yoke can be shattered and will be shattered. That he can reign over your life. That he can be your everlasting father, your prince of peace, your wonderful counselor, your mighty God. This is the promise of Jesus. That he can remove your fear. That you know who he is. He is from, and that he has a plan for your future. The outcome of this for both Mary and Joseph was that they needed to know faith, hope, and love. Very, very famous verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 to 13, says, Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. I believe that for Mary and Joseph, this was that moment of seeing in a reflection, in a mirror. They would see face to face when Jesus was born. But at that time, they saw a reflection in a mirror. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. They needed to have faith that this was from God, that there was no need to fear. They needed to hope that this was a gift for the future. For them, but not just for them. And they needed to know love. Love incarnate. The God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And that's my prayer for you this Christmas that you would know faith, you would know hope, that you would know love, the God who is love. And remember, we are different people, but we're in this together. Like Mary and Joseph, like everybody involved in that Christmas story, we're in it together. But God wants to speak to us individually. I believe that God wants each one of us to have our own revelation of who he is this Christmas. That it's not just another Christmas, but that this can be a turning point. It can be a moment of change where God says, hold on, I'm doing something new this Christmas. Can I encourage you to dig deep into God this Christmas? Don't let it pass you by. Don't get absorbed with the planning, whatever organizational stage you're at. But take a moment to receive from him, to hear from him. Not relying on somebody else's revelation, but finding your own. Because he wants to speak to you. He wants you to know his love this Christmas more than anything else. More than the presents or the tree or the the kids or the food or whatever it is. His love should be what you remember this Christmas for.
Can I pray for you? I want to give an opportunity for if there is anyone in the room who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't know God, doesn't know this love. Then I'd like you just to take a moment now and raise your hand if you would like to. And we'll have somebody come and pray with you. And it'd be a privilege to do that this Christmas. For the rest of us, Father, I thank you for your church. Father, I thank you that we are different, but we are in this together. God, I pray that that togetherness will be a hallmark of this Christmas. And Father, I pray that you would increase our faith. Father, you would give us hope and that we would know your love this Christmas.